My name is Dan. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship, and we are in Acts chapter 10, and that is not a typo. We're going to go all the way to 1118 today, so we have a lot to cover, and this is a, um, a huge shift in the book of Acts. In fact, if you look at your outline of the book of Acts, which is in your bulletin, uh, the, the map of Acts, which is on the left side of the inside of your bulletin, we're covering two points, <laughs> which is the prejudice of ourselves and the, the prejudice of, of, of others and how to deal with them. So we have a lot to cover. So I'll give you a moment to turn to Acts chapter 10. God has invited the nations to his kingdom, and we are in great danger if we oppose him. He made every nation. I think we'd all agree on that. And so from the very beginning of history, he's worked out a plan to bring people from every nation into his nation, his kingdom. You see, it's never simply been about the Jewish people. Now, you may have noticed that this plan's actually been unfolding all throughout the book of Acts so far. It began with Jesus sending his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8, to the ends of the earth. And this suggested that more than just the Jews would receive the gospel, although we can't blame them for not putting it all together right away. Um, But see for yourself how it progressed outward so far. First in chapter 2, if you remember when Peter got up and preached kind of the sermon of his life, Many hardcore Jews were converted during a Jewish feast. And then in chapters 3 through 5, Jewish pilgrims that were also in the area followed. And then half-breed Jews in Samaria in chapter 8. And then later in that chapter, there were converts to Judaism from far-off lands. And finally in chapter 9, where we just were last week, The converts were Jewish people who were living among Gentiles. Do you see the pattern going out? The message hasn't changed, but the audience has has been getting progressively less Jewish. And this week, the uh, lid is going to get blown off because God will then give the gospel to the Gentiles through Peter. God will give the gospel to the Gentiles, to people like us. So what does this mean? Well, God and his kingdom are for more than the Jews, like it or not. (laughs) And I say that because there are Jews in today's story who will not like it, in the same way that there are people today who claim to love God and yet refuse to share the kingdom with certain people. But if God has brought the nations together, who are we to oppose him? So let's first read about these nations coming together by continuing the Apostle Peter's story as he's continued this outward expansion. Remember last week he worked a couple of pretty amazing miracles. Let's see what he does this week and let's see what God does. So as I read chapter 10, verses 1 through 24... Look for what God does compared to what Peter does and uh, look out for a new guy named Cornelius and see what he does. 
So let me read those verses. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come into him and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring me one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, that is Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. All right, so the first thing we learn here is that God is bringing the nations together by the Holy Spirit. First, let's look at Cornelius, the new guy. He's a, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion, but verse 2 calls him God-fearing and generous. In short, he loves God and he loves his neighbor, which according to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that's the kind of person God wants. God has worked in the heart of this man. He's respected by the, Jewish na- the whole Jewish nation, it seems, uh, as we learn later. But look at what else God does in verse 3. He sends an angel to connect him to Peter and to tell him that he's approved. So God is all doing all of this, and what is Cornelius doing? He's just following. That's it. He's not really doing a lot. Now let's look at Peter, because the events are different, but I think the theme is the exact same. God connects Peter to Cornelius, and he does this through a vision in verse 11. And this is a kind of strange event. 
So let's take a little time on this one. So something like a great sheet falls down. Peter's up on the roof. He's hungry. And uh, this sheet is filled with, according to verse 12, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice in verse 13 says, kill and eat to Peter. So what's happening? Peter doesn't know. And the narrator hasn't really told us yet either. It's a mystery. And though Peter hasn't really put it together yet, if you're familiar at all with Jewish food laws, you know that Peter's being told, you can eat stuff that you're not, you weren't previously allowed to eat. So we can say this. On the mission that God has sent Peter, the customs he holds dearly are being dismissed. You got it? So his cultural nuances are sort of being brought down. In this case, tightly held food laws. And verse 14 shows us that Peter resists. By no means, Lord, he says. He says this to God. By no means. Peter said that before to Jesus and he got called Satan. Peter's taken this pretty personally. But the vision is repeated three times and Peter is just left perplexed according to verse 17. And then God brings in Cornelius' men and Peter's told to follow. Again, God has done all the work. What has Peter done? He's hungry. (laughs) That's it. But he does follow. He does obey. Like Cornelius, that's what he does. Perplexed a bit, he goes in the right direction. Now, how would the original audience have taken in all this? Well, Theophilus, the guy who received this letter from the hand of Luke, who is himself an apostle, Theophilus is this important man who has been considering the testimony of Luke regarding Jesus and regarding everybody in this new kingdom. And as he read this, I think Theophilus would conclude that God is bringing together different people by his Holy Spirit in a very uncomfortable way. A very uncomfortable way. I mean, how do we apply this then? Well, know that God's expansion plan is uncomfortable. The mission he sends you on. And to really grasp that, I want to, I want you to remember the Peter we met last week. Do you remember the stories I was telling? Evangelist extraordinaire, miracle worker, he's bringing people back from the dead. Look at him here. Is this the same guy? He's hungry. He's confused. He's kind of flying by the seat of his pants from his point of view. Is this the same guy? Yeah. I think God is showing Peter here that following him means abandoning comfort and control. Have you ever been there? 20 years ago, God called me to do volunteer work for a church in New York City. You may occasionally hear the accent slip out when I get excited. Now that was an exciting time for me In hindsight, in hindsight, the first few weeks were terrifying. 
I mean, I'm in this big city reaching very strange people. Goodbye to Pennsylvania customs and comforts. You know what? I saw God do the most amazing things there when I left my comfort zone. People I never believed could be Christians were Christians and became Christians. So what about you? How do you feel knowing that God might send you flying by the seat of your pants anywhere to serve him in any way? Wrestle with that. What if God wanted you to work with some of the people you watched in that video? How do you feel about that? How much do you like air conditioning? Or heat? (laughs) But Isaiah 10.13 makes clear implications. Men move by the hand of God. So the application I really want you to lean in is your response to what God is going to do anyway. Not will you move, because God may move you even if you don't want to be moved. My question is, how will you respond to God? When I went to New York, I admit that I had a lower view of God than I do now. That's how sanctification works. Um, So you know what? There were times then when I felt like a pawn on a chessboard that was just being moved around to be killed in vain. That's how I would feel a lot. But God is in the good business of destroying comfort zones. He's taking ordinary people like Peter and he's sending them to the ends of the earth. What do you expect? (laughs) Right? And it's not just an international tour. He says a lot more to do than food. But Peter's not only going to meet the Gentiles, the last people a Jew might expect... But soon, he's actually going to stand with them and they're all going to worship the same God. So let me continue there with chapter 10, verse 24 through 48. As we look at now the wrestling with God, sort of shift to the wrestling with the, those people that you're being sent to. 24 through 48. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked to them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago at about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear 
all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who has come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. All right, the second thing we learn here is that God has brought the nations together through the Holy Spirit so that all would be invited to God's kingdom. So that all would be invited to God's kingdom. So Cornelius and Peter, they're brought together. But then in verse 25, Cornelius worships Peter. But Peter, I think, is beginning to demonstrate that he understands what that vision meant in verse 26 by saying this, Stand up. We are both men. He doesn't see us and them. He doesn't see cultural customs. Things like culture to him, I think, are beginning to become secondary. There's no us and them. That's why in verse 28, Peter basically says this. You know we shouldn't be together. But God has shown me that we can be. Not just for tourism. This isn't just about being able to eat whatever you want with whoever you want. After Cornelius retells his story, he asked Peter to share what God has commanded him to share. And here we have the point of the nations coming together for the sake of the gospel. And that is summed up in verse 43. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What's crazy is this seems like a really cool story for Cornelius, but I think Peter's the one having the real revelation. I mean, think about it. Um, God makes all food, right? So he made all the animals. 
factors comparisons between that list of animals and the sheet in Genesis. We won't bother. But um, God made all food and he judges it now all equal under him. So all animals, all food down here, God up here. God made all people and he likewise now is judging them as all equal under him. And they are declared innocent, according to Peter, not by themselves, but by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And as confirmation of this, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and they're baptized. Friends, let's just, let's just get theological for a minute. This is like a cosmic wedding. This is what's happening. When God joins a man and a woman together, there is good reason why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, what God has joined together, let man not separate. If God does the unifying, it is a holy union. It hits different. And so here, please don't miss this. What's going on is not the clean nation of the Jewish people being married to the unclean nation of the Gentiles, what's happening is unclean people of all nations being married to a holy God. That's what happens here. And friends, in the presence of many witnesses, God has done this. It's a wedding. And as we see here in the text, some hear and some believe. Not everybody. This is not universalism. But people from new nations believe. They enter the kingdom. So how would the original audience apply this? My goodness. I mean, I think Theophilus would go a bit further here. So it's not simply that the nations can be together, but that God's unstoppable kingdom is for anyone Like, you think we're getting big now. We're not limited by the ends of Jewish territory. We're just getting started. So how do we apply this? Well, I'm going to do a record skip here. Our application is wrestle with your own prejudice. Because as I challenge you to wrestle with God in point one, sending you to anyone... Wrestle now with your heart as you consider the people that you might be equal to. Wrestle with the people that he might be working in. I mean, just for example, how about the Indians in that video you just watched? Did you even know who they were 20 minutes ago? How would you feel about giving up everything to reach a people group who their own country hates. Could God be calling you to these people? Honestly, the people God might be sending you to and working in might be people you simply want nothing to do with. And you don't say that, but in your life, you may show that you don't really care. All you might have in common with these people is Jesus. 
Now that's funny, but our minds don't often work that way. So we have to confront our prejudice. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, it gets really messy. Here's a messy story. My wife told me a story of a girl she knew from the school she attended growing up. It was a private Christian school. This girl reached out to my wife a few years ago and said, Hey, my girlfriend and I are moving to the area and we're looking for a church. Do you know of any? What would you say? What would you say to that? There's a real temptation for Wallace to just kind of, you know, leave that on red or um, maybe sidestep the answer. Now, to my credit, even, even to my wife's solid response, which is one of the reasons why I married her, um, she, she wondered, you know, did, could I have worded that better? Was I too strong? Too soft? Told her about the church? Told her what we believe? Invited them? They didn't come. But what do you do with people like that? The Lord might be working in them a lot more than you think. But there's just something about them that you just don't want to touch. You know? How would it go if they showed up here? Maybe even as we'll find out in the next chapter, what would people think of you for bringing them? So how about you? Who are the people who could be listening to this sermon right now if you love them enough to invite them? I mean, seriously, how big do you want God's kingdom? Really? Do you know that you can invite somebody here who voted for a different presidential candidate than you? Do you get that? Or do you think heaven is just full of people like you? See, when we polarize culture, when we just kind of get our fingers away from people that strike us as a little strange, even ones who are showing interest in the kingdom, and especially those who are showing interest in the kingdom, we can doubt that God is working in people different than us. So my question is the same thought that Peter fired at Cornelius. Are we not all men? Are we not all unclean people apart from Jesus? Consider yourself. Are you really such an ideal spouse for God? You the marrying type? It's for this reason, guys, that we should not be surprised by our own prejudice, but we also must not be content. Who are we to stand in God's way? And friends, when we see clearly, when we take that stuff off and the invitation becomes for everyone, especially those who are receptive to God, when we see clearly as Peter does here, many will come in the kingdom rejoicing. Not everyone. But here's the thing. It won't, um, it's actually going to be even messier. I mean, it's messy in and of itself, right? But it's actually going to get messy for another, another reason. And 
Peter's actually going to find this out as he reports to his own church. Let's uh, read our last portion here. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in this order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn again up into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house and um, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and we told us I'd been, how we'd seen the angel stand in this house and say, send a job and bring to Simon who's called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on as us from the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the third and final thing we learn here is that we must resist the religious resistors. In other words, as we've confronted God's lack of prejudice and we've confronted our own prejudice, now we work with the prejudice of those who are religious. Peter does not get a warm reception here from his own people. Sound familiar? They want these supposed new converts to be essentially Jews first and Christians second. These guys are uncircumcised. You can't be around them. So here's what Peter does. I love what he does here. He doesn't sidestep. Now he does tell the whole story again and I'm not going to repeat it. By now you might have it memorized. But I am going to draw attention to a few really good things we can learn from in Peter's approach. First, Peter leverages his own reputation. Now, if you, if you read the whole story back in chapter 10, the story starts with Cornelius. That's who God kind of initiated with. But Peter begins with his side of the story. And I think this is on purpose because even though Cornelius is a respected man, When it comes to something like this, I think the circumcision party would be inclined to believe Peter rather than Cornelius. But here's the bigger thing. Peter leverages God's reputation. Most specifically, he does that with this phrase in verse 17. 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? One brother helped me see it this way. It's kind of like Peter's blaming God. And friends, this is actually true. And we actually have a lot of power when we do this. Because seriously, how much of it were we a part of, that expansion? I mean, God the Father is bringing the nations together. And God made this possible by sending His Son, Jesus, who died and was raised, that the nations could receive God's Holy Spirit. What did we do? We just followed that. It really is all God's responsibility. And it's His kingdom. And for that reason, it has nothing to do with being Jewish. Do you get why the culture is secondary now? You're leaving your culture and you're part of a new kingdom from all nations. And when that happens, culture can just mash into each other. So how do we apply this? Well, we resist the the religious resistors. So as you work out your own wrestling with God, that's point one, and your own prejudice, point two, wrestle with the prejudice of the people around you. Religious people. Now, when I hit on point two, and we had to lean in a little bit, I realized that not all of you struggle with prejudice equally. Some of you might really struggle with it. Some of you might struggle with it a little bit now. Sure, you all do at least a little bit. But here's the thing. If you're part of a, uh, of a Christian family, if you're part of a church, you will encounter religious people who are prejudiced. It's inevitable. That's what happens when people of different cultures come together. You look at your culture and you give it the thumbs up. You look at other cultures, we don't like how you do it. For America, I like to be on time. What do you mean you're three hours late? You're crazy. You get that? All these little cultural nuances. Um, so, I admit though, when you, when you talk to people, they're not going to say they're prejudiced. No, not many people lead with that. So how do you actually dig that up? How do you actually kind of get the conversation going? Well, Christianity says you're a Christian first. And so to be prejudiced, think in your mind, that's to take secondary issues, even good aspects of your culture, and you kind of entangle them on purpose. You, you kind of assume those things apply to God's kingdom when they don't. You with me? So here's one example. I can't hit on everything. Here's one example that I think applies to American culture in particular and can lead to tremendous prejudice, and that's self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. It's a subtle idea that somebody's spiritual maturity is directly proportional to how independent they are. So to paint a picture, think about this. A church member who thinks this way might get really excited to welcome a stable, smiling family through those doors. Right? Grad student who's kind of together, husband and wife with two kids, everybody kind of dressed up a little bit, good job, good income. We bring those people in. Hey, you really have it together, I bet. 
but they would hesitate to welcome the widow or the orphan or the single parent. Here's the thing. You don't overtly reject them, but you just keep them at a distance. You might see somebody who's chronically sick or somebody who has been a victim of abuse and you don't know what to do, but you don't do anything. You just kind of let them wilt because they're not your kind of people. Or maybe you're a parent and deep down you don't want your child to marry someone from that video we just watched. You wouldn't want them to be an elder here, would you? I mean, my goodness, I've been on both sides of the table here (laughs) when it comes to classism. Look at my kids. I I want them to do okay, right? How is Jesus' 401k? Really? What about Paul? How much is that tangled in what you do and how you judge people? How do you interact with people like that? Now, here's the thing. I, I want people to thrive, right? Like, if they're chronically sick, I want to help them, right? No question. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we entangle that with salvation, then we start to play the role of God. Now, I like what we have going on here. Right? I think we're a very welcoming church. We may not struggle here, maybe as much as the average, but while it might seem crazy for me to even suggest that such prejudice lives here, I'm sure it does to some degree. And if you want me to lead, here's how I'm going to lead. Let me say that at some point or another in my life, I struggled with being prejudiced toward every example that I just gave you. If you want to talk more, we can talk. (laughs) And here's the thing. Knowing my own prejudice has enabled me to see clearly and help others to deal with theirs. Kind of a speck log thing. I think that's somewhere else in the Bible. Um, And I think that's why we can learn so much from Peter here. Because Peter doesn't attack the people who are prejudiced. Man, as we apply this, look at this. He doesn't attack the people in these verses. You'd think he'd lay them out and he doesn't. Instead, he appeals just to his own reputation and he appeals to God's reputation and he tells the truth. And he wins his audience and they fall silent. And perhaps on that day, a few more unlikely people just got married to Jesus. Who himself was ironically hated and rejected and killed by his own so that they could be married to him. So on that same note, if you're hearing this and you're not part of God's kingdom or you're just not sure, I want to offer you the same invitation that God offered the Gentiles you are invited to God's kingdom. 
you can actually stand up and stand with us because you, like me, like all of us, are just unclean people in the presence of a welcoming, holy God. And if that's not a representation of communion, I don't know what is. Sinful people here, churches everywhere, are united together by a holy God who died in our place. And if that's you, I want you to join us in communion this morning. 